Okay, so welcome back to the Cracks in Postmodernity. We're here with David Schindler, who's the author of Freedom from Reality, amongst many other books. Uh, so before we jump into speaking about the book, just tell us a little bit about your background and uh, the stuff that you're working on. Sure. I, um, um, I uh, majored in college in the great books and uh, have always had an attraction to the, the classical uh, tradition, um, especially the, the Greeks um, and the classical tradition, but uh, I've always approached it from within a Catholic context. Um, and uh, the great books is, is kind of an interdisciplinary uh, project. Um, so I never made a strong distinction between philosophy and theology. I mean, I understand that and, and agree with the technical distinctions between those uh, two fields, but I was sort of torn. I always did my philosophy from a theological perspective or my mm -hmm. theology from a philosophical perspective. Uh, but eventually uh, after finishing um, undergrad, decided to study theology uh, in graduate school. And after a couple of years, um, decided that in fact my heart was more directly in philosophy um, so switched to uh, I did my PhD in philosophy but I wrote on a theologian so that was kind of a compromise I think if I had stayed in if that took any longer I probably would have switched back to theology at a certain point so I've always been on the, on the, on the edge but my interests have principally been metaphysics and okay. um, and anthropology um, but about um, 10 years ago or so uh, I uh, developed an interest, um, you know, in part probably uh, because of my wife, who's a political philosopher, um, and uh, because of just an interest in cultural questions, I started developing interest in political philosophy. So that's a that's a, a an area I've been uh, thinking a lot about lately and writing a lot about. Um, I don't expect to stay in that area forever. I've I'm working back into metaphysics, but uh, it seemed to me, it, it's become clearer to me, um, especially given the state of our culture, that uh, you can't really think about philosophy in a vacuum mm -hmm. in kind of a pure ether, but um, so much of what's going on in the culture ent enters into your thinking, whether you are aware of it or not. And if that's the case, it's better to be aware of it. So I yeah. think, you know, this reflection on, on cultural questions is, is really uh, essential in general, but especially when culture is in a, in a kind of state of crisis, which I really think it is. Yeah, um, and that speaks to why, you know, your book Freedom from Reality spoke to me so much, because even though, yeah, I mean, it's pretty dense. It's a heavy work of, uh, of philosophy, theology, but um, it shed a lot of light on my own experience growing up I guess as a millennial, but just growing up in America, growing up in the West during this time. And it kind of gave me the tools to make sense of how did I end up where I am? How do we arrive to certain conclusions about the self, about reality in general? So if you can just explain, like summarize the main thesis of the book and how you develop it, how you came up with uh, this idea. Thank you. Yeah, I, I the, um, the main thesis, I would say, um, uh, it, the, the point of the book, first of all, it's part of a trilogy, um, uh, or at least an intended trilogy. In fact, I'm right now copy editing uh, volume two, which will be out later this year. Um, uh, th this book is meant to be a critique of 
the contemporary conceptions of freedom. Um, volume two is meant to be uh, an attempt to retrieve a classical Christian view in, in some depth. Um, and then the third volume will be a, a, a more constructive than theory um, about, about freedom, uh, if, if I get to that, uh, I, th I think I will. Um, but the, the thesis of this book in particular is uh, it, the, the point was to try to um, come to terms with where we are as a culture. And um, freedom is no doubt one of the most um, significant influential ideas. It's, it's our, our appeal to freedom is everywhere in, in our you know, politics, in our economics, in our culture, you know, our, our uh, entertainment and aesthetics, the artistic expressions. We appeal to freedom in our um, in technology, uh, science and technology. We appeal to freedom in the way we think of, of our relationships. I mean, it's it's it, there's there's nothing that we do in our in our contemporary world that isn't somehow about freedom. And if that's the case, you know, it's it seems pretty clear that if you've got an impoverished and problematic view of freedom, it's going to infect everything. Yeah. And I think, in fact, that's that is the case. I think we do have an impoverished sense of freedom, and I think it has affected absolutely everything in our culture, in our intellectual life, our religious life, our political life, economic life, the whole the whole spectrum. So um, I, the the task was okay. What what is exactly? How do we formulate what's what is the problem in our con conception of freedom and Eventually, I hit on this idea of the diabolical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not to be overly dramatic, and yeah. and and, but but um, it it struck me that that uh, that it was a useful notion in all sorts. When you go into the etymology of it, I mean, but the ba the basic etymology is that uh, uh, diabolain in Greek, balain is to cast or to throw. Um, and dia, among its many meanings, is is um, uh, uh, opposition or setting yeah, like two, two exactly. So, so it's the it's the perfect etymological uh, contrast to symbol, symbol, exactly, yeah. which is joining things together. Uh, the diabolical sets things apart, um, and that seemed to me to 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 really hit on something essential in, in the modern conception of freedom. But then also, you know, what does, what does the, the word diabolical sort of evoke? Um, there's deception and deceit and, um, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the diabolical sort of exchange. I mean, there, there, there are a whole host of things that seem to me kind of imaginatively to, to shed light on it. So I, 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 um, uh, even a kind of a metaphysical interpretation of the diabolical as a way of, of trying to make make sense of this this experience yeah. and you know like the various cultural phenomena yeah and i think as much as it's uh, a kind of intense word to use i mean it's accurate to describe our sense of freedom as something that really separates us from reality and one of the things one of the main insights that i got just reflecting on what this book had to do with my own experience is that especially for my generation growing up like we were really taught to look at our relationship with the real 
is totally filtered through our own subjectivity, our feelings, our whims, our instincts, and that reality should conform to our wills. That if, you know, we dream it, then it should happen. Or if I want it, it should be my way. And I guess, you know, it depends on the particular cultural context you're growing up in. Because for me, like I was growing up in a very comfortable setting, like very privileged. Um, and I know a lot of others may not have it that same way, but still the kind of air of the culture is, this is the ideal, you know, this is what you should want. And when I thought about it though, like when I was reading your book, it's like, what came first, like my subjectivity or reality? So to be taught that everything should conform to my will, it's not realistic. Not only that, but that it's like, it creates this separation between you and what's actually happening in reality. And it sets you up for a lot of frustration, a lot of disillusionment. And like, I, I noticed compared to, to older generations, but also to people growing up in other cultures, especially outside of the West, that people my age, like American millennials, have a lot of these emotional, psychological complexes that others don't have. And I think it's coming from this clash between the subjectivist worldview and what reality actually is. And I feel like this is where the diabolical comes in. Like it's not only the separation, but it's destructive to the psyche, to the soul, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you, you, uh, you put it precisely there. There, it's, there is a kind of a, uh, uh, destruction um, that's connected to the separation. And why, why, why would separating from reality be destructive? Well, because the human soul was made to connect with reality. I mean, there, you know, um, the, back to the, the classical anthropology, it's the, it's, um, you know, what, what's distinctive about the human soul, what's distinctive about human existence is our capacity, in fact, to unite to, in a profound way to things outside of ourselves, you know, purely material things can get really close and they can mm -hmm. touch, but they can't really form one. Um, yeah. You know, they, the material things displace each other. The human soul can can actually um, take in what is outside and and, and penetrate into uh, into the other um, without displacing. I mean, precisely the opposite. You um, properly uh, undertaken that kind of unity liberates the other and liberates the self together. You know, and so and that's what we're made for. So if we if we have this conception of freedom that increasingly detaches us from that, then it's it's you know it's not just that we're not do, failing to do justice to reality, but we're we're denying something that's really defines who we are, defines our our nature. Yeah, and I think on one hand there's this level of violence that this view kind of brings about because you're forcing your will onto reality, which again it's that's not how it actually is set up to be, you know? So it's this inevitable frustration of continuously trying to impose this ideal that I have conceived of subjectively um, when it's never really gonna click. But it's also, I think this, um, for me, I think of it as a despair because it's like you, especially if we think about freedom in terms of the narrative of authenticity, like be your real self, be true to who you are. Um, when do I actually become my real self, quote unquote? I think it ends up becoming that, like, 
it becomes a matter of consumption. Like I have to attain all these things that I perceive to be true to who I am, but when am I ever going to get enough of it? You know, it's, so it's this like delusion of, um, of freedom when really I'm just, I'm keep hitting this wall. I keep hitting this sense of frustration, but aside from, I guess, the philosophical analysis, I'm curious to know from your point of view, like how did, why did this narrative become the norm that we passed on to younger people? Like at least, I don't know, like I think of my parents telling me a lot of these, these things. I'm like, well, where did you get these ideas from? Like, yeah. is it just, I don't know, pop culture? Is it, I don't know, what, do you, what would you say? Yeah, well, before I answer that, if I, if I could just mm-hmm. uh, comment on, on your first uh, observations. Yeah. I, you know, I, th- I think that it's, a, it's a really complex and dialectical Mm-hmm. Um, uh, phenomenon here. In one respect, we try, we think we're going to impose our will subjectively, force reality to um, conform to our immediate desires. But at the very same time, and arguably for the same reason, um, we immediately, we have this tendency immediately to kind of capitulate to a pure passivity with respect to reality, that reality that we can't do anything. We're simply, you know, um, uh, 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 helpless um, uh, cogs in a machine that that just grinds on through us, um, and that we get carried up into it. I mean, there, there there's so many instances of, of, of that. I so it's 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 a, a curious thing. I mean, I think we we um, that 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 dialectic, and you know, that was part of the point of the the diabolical too. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's you get these rather than um, this mystery of uh, uh, paradox that that we are ourselves the more we're related to the other and those kinds of things you end up getting the two halves split apart that then mm-hmm. constantly turn into each other so it's it's this really really complicated complicated thing so I yeah um, uh, I mean there, there, there are different levels to that now I think it's a very complex story but usually that you know there's there's um there's some pointing to you know in terms of intellectual history the late middle ages where you had this you know happy kind of you know not that not that it was a romantic picture of the of the olden days kind of a thing but but there was a there was a certain sense of an organic wholeness to the cosmos that fragments in the late middle ages and um uh you know one can point to the you know to to the the you know reformation um the protestant reformation which would be a a major uh uh, dimension of fragmentation but there's you know philosophically you have nominalism um which is when when uh, uh things just kind of uh uh fall apart um, in economics, you have a rise of kind of an individualistic capitalism. In politics, you have the fragmentation of of you know Christendom into um, warring nation states, um, and 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 on and on. I mean, you, you, there's this kind of fragmentation. Now, in you know, I find America is just a, an endlessly fascinating um, case of this because. A claim is often made that we we have somehow escaped from a lot of the problems uh, of 
the wars of religion and so forth and the, and and then the you know the kind of materialism and then the violence of the french revolution and so forth whereas in america um we devise this way of dealing with the world that um uh, neutralizes those um violent provoking questions mm -hmm. and allows us to just sort of live out in our individual, you know, determine things as the way we need them individually um, yeah. um, on a free playing field. But I, but in fact, it's becoming clear, um, um, you, you know, that, that, that simple uh, interpretation has always been contested. Um, but, but for a while, the, 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 um, the 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 protest was was the minor voice it's getting to be the, the the kind of dominant voice now it's become i think clear to most people that um uh the the playing field was never level here um that the um fundamental concepts in the american um regime are just as violent as they were in the french revolution and so forth it's just a more hidden violence and and uh, um, and and in fact, arguably, um, the situation is more extreme here because precisely because of the illusion of peace, it's it's been allowed to enter much more deeply into our self-conception. I mean, how we even run our families and so forth. That this um, uh, a lot of these problems have become very very deep. Um, yeah, and I think that's where the diabolical comes in again. That it's this deceptive promise of freedom when really there's so much violence and power at hand is just hidden yeah. you know no that's, so, that's right, I was gonna... that's right. The, the very things that that are offered to overcome the violence mm -hmm. insinuate the violence and that's that's it's an extraordinary phenomenon yeah and i was gonna ask just on the level of your experience you know you're saying how in america like it's kind of intensified but like when you look at cultures outside of the US, do you notice that, I don't know, the, these concepts are not as, uh, don't shape the everyday life of the people? Uh, have, have you ever just observed that? Yeah, you know, it, that's, that's a, a very, comp, that's, an, again, another endlessly interesting question uh, and a fascinating one, and, and one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I've, I've lived um, in Europe, um, for many years in different countries, um, uh, moved around quite a bit growing up. So I have, so I have some sense, but um, I, I think it's 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 a little imprudent to 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 judge how I, one of the one of the senses that I've acquired and the, the the experience I've had living abroad and and traveling abroad quite a bit is how dangerous it is to assume you understand these cultures. Um, there's, there's, and and you know that's part of the argument of the book. In fact, is is there's no substitute for um, being in a place and 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 growing there uh, for understanding what's going on. That 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 organic image of having your roots planted, and uh, and, and the, the more deeply your roots are planted, the the more fully you can grow. I mean that that's 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 part of the. The key to freedom. So, so I hesitate, you know, to to speak mm -hmm. about other cultures. But insofar as I've had uh, experience of other cultures, I would say, on the one hand, um, uh, the um, there's there's an increasingly um, sort of ideological uh, um, 
um, uh, what would I say, um, assumption of this of the same sorts of, you know, diabolical features, breaking with traditions, you know, um, making, you know, creating your own identity. I think that 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 concept is be is becoming um, fairly global now. It's not simply an American uh, thing. Um, uh, on the other hand, there, there are all sorts of subtle ways I find that um, people uh, from more traditional cultures uh, just simply take for granted um, things like uh, family and place and language and culture and inherited traditions. They, they take them more for granted as part of their identity than we than we tend to do in the US. I mean, we, we we're, we're it seems to me we're speaking more about these things in the US than we used to. You know, there, there are all sorts of movements to rediscover your ethnic roots and, you know, recover some of your family's old traditions and so forth. But but there's there's an odd thing about a recovered tradition, and especially if you're doing it in kind of as a kind of remedy for a certain unhappiness that, that, that you feel. It's different from um, always having had a tradition and, and, and it's being in fact a tradition. It becomes, it becomes you know, you know I, can, I can cook, you know, Mexican food mm -hmm. at home here and, and I can cook whatever, German food the next night or whatever. That's not, that's not the same thing as inhabiting the tradition. Yeah. You're, it becomes more ornamental or mm -hmm. sentimental um, but not 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 profoundly determinative, um, and that yeah. And I feel like that's, that's our sense of when people talk about diversity today. I mean, it's this. Uh, I guess we get to this ornamental, rootless understanding yeah. of appreciating cultures. But no, but I I think what you're saying though about having to actually like live in a culture and really get a sense of it. Like I, when I lived in the Mediterranean for a couple months. I noticed that even people who are, you know, said that they were very secular, did not profess any faith, you could see that their lifestyles were shaped more by this sense of the symbolic, that yeah. everyday yeah. simple realities are tied to some higher ideal, whether it's from the way they approach their work to just sitting down and eating a meal. Like, I just noticed how starkly different it was from what I was used to in America. You yeah. Know? But. I mean, one can multiply those examples, and they're so fascinating. I, mm -hmm. I uh, one of the last times I was in Europe, I um, rented a car with a friend and was startled to discover that there was no cup holder hmm. in the car. And I mean, I mean, yeah. can you imagine an American car that didn't? Have, I mean, I you no. know, my my van has like fourteen cup holders, <laughs> and 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 you know, I thought about it. it's it's a subtle thing, but. Um, uh, in in a lot of European cultures, still, the idea that you would eat and drink in your car mm -hmm. just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, you 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 sit at a table, and you know that 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 you that, that that food is part of a meal. That's part of a that has a sort of social reality. And these these that would be an example of a of a of a. a it's not that, um, um, you know. It, one doesn't have to be religious to, to, to mm -hmm. appreciate. I mean, secular people, uh, you know, people that think of themselves as secular still hold on to those things. Um, um, but, but they carry with them a kind of religious meaning mm -hmm. um, uh, that, you know, I think is, 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 is crucial. I mean, the ideal is to, is to 
both have those and recognize their religious significance. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if you don't if you don't have those things sort of organically and, and natively, um, uh, to try to just give give things a religious significance kind of after the fact, it doesn't it it doesn't resonate the same way. It doesn't fulfill our our you know our religious sense, our need for. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this kind of deeper connection to God and to other people in God uh, that that is part of our humanity. But then, so then what I would ask, like something that I find challenging is that when I read this, okay, I see all the shortcomings in the way that I was brought up and the culture I'm surrounded by. And it's so clear that just reading about these, these issues, especially like reading about it on a philosophical level, like that doesn't create this organic change in me. Like I could read all the books I want. I'm mm-hmm. still immersed in this culture, have the sense of reality that I have. So it's just frustrating to see that, you know, sometimes I feel trapped because I don't have that kind of organic starting point. I have a, you know, this kind of diabolical one. So I would, I'm just curious, like for you, especially because, you know, you read about this stuff, you write about this stuff. Um, how do you confront the fact that, okay, you're living in a culture that is very much opposed to these ideals that you hold to be dear? Like how yeah. do you kind of live against the grain? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, you know, we try to recover our, our, our roots, our traditions. And, mm-hmm. and now, um, it's becoming clear to me, you know, there, there can be a, a sort of a cafeteria style, you know, approach that you try something on, you, you, you try this, you, you, you invent new traditions for your family and that, um, that that's to be avoided. But, but the, but the fact of the matter is as human beings, we can't, but have a tradition. There's just, <laughs> um, uh, it doesn't have to be invented. There is going to be something there. And, um, uh, and there's a re- and there's a reality that faces us every single day the moment we wake up in the morning um so i mean the the very beginning is to just start with things as they actually are and um attend more more fully to the relationships that we actually have mm-hmm. with our our family who is actually present and so forth and in our neighborhood and um you know you 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 know as they say you sort of begin locally um i i think there are all sorts of ways that we can foster the relationships that that we find ourselves in um but it, but it's important in doing so that we that we actually still do keep in mind the big picture sorts of questions yeah. so that um you know so it's not just a sentimental you know cherishing the the, the friendships that we have kind of a thing but we recognize that these are you know uh, ultimately, um, uh, have their roots in the in the in the church, which transcends the the, the lo- local and even the the concreteness of our family. This yeah. is something that kind of brings us into the larger um, horizon mm-hmm. naturally. Yeah, and I think this is one of the most challenging things for me, but a lot of people I know around my age is that to be committed to what's given to you, to the stuff that has, that you haven't necessarily chosen. Like that's a big sacrifice that I think, um, unless you have some kind of promise that this sacrifice is meaningful and fulfilling, it's easier to just walk away. And I think this is where actual religion comes in because, you know, if, um, if our ideal of freedom is I pick 
my lifestyle. I pick everything. And, you know, the people given to me are difficult to deal with sometimes, especially my family or even my friends. Like, it's easier to uproot myself, walk away and find something new that's not as difficult to deal with. Um, and it's like this, this, again, it's this diabolical promise that it appears promising that I can just walk away when someone's being toxic, as, as we say all the time. Yeah, right. But now that I get to walk away and uproot myself, like there's this deeper existential dread, this loneliness that we feel because as much as it's nice to be able to choose to do whatever you want or be with whoever you want, like without those deeply rooted commitments, that place where you belong, um, you know, there is that emptiness, but what makes it possible for me to stay and deal with my difficult family members or my tradition? That's not always, doesn't always conform to my whims. Um, I do think there has to be some experience, the transcendent that makes it possible to see that in all of this, in all the messiness, the difficulty, there's something beautiful that I'm not going to perceive with my natural eyes, with my earthly eyes, I guess. Yeah. 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 No, I I would agree. I I would add to that too, that, um, we need to, uh, uh, think of our lives as a whole as well. I mean, um, you know, so, so the transcendence is not just the vertical transcendence of the divine God, the religious, although it absolutely is Mm -hmm. that, but there's also a kind of a horizontal transcendence. And we think of our, 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 the whole of our lives and put, put our immediate experience in a context. So for example, um, you know, in, in an immediate way, does it, does it make me happier? Do I feel more fulfilled? Um, uh, washing the dishes after dinner when I'm exhausted um, so that, you know, that, that the, the household has a sense of order that, you know, serves the family, or do I feel more fulfilled in, you know, letting that sit and going and, you know, watching Netflix or something? Yeah. Um, you know, if I, if I ask the question in this moment, how do I feel, um, you know, that... <laughs> You might say, well, I actually feel a lot better watching Netflix. I mean, it's more, it's less taxing. So, but, you know, I, I, I read an article somewhere uh, where a person made the observation, you know, the, on, on, on the deathbed, um, one phrase that no one has ever uttered on their, you know, in their sort of dying breath, you know, if I could do it all over again, I would watch more television. Um, you know, you, so, I mean, I, I, and that's obvious, right? Um, you're not, you're not going to be happier. Um, uh, you know, e- even if it, in this immediate moment, it seems more consoling to escape in this little way. If you think of your life as a whole, um, it changes the perspective pretty dramatically. Um, and you know it's not it's not uh, it's not the same sort of happiness as what's at issue. Yeah. No, and it, this kind of makes me think of uh, earlier this week. There are a lot of news headlines about uh, the Pope saying that young people should be looking to have kids rather than just getting dogs or pets. Yeah. yeah. It created this uh, this uproar in a lot of circles, but. It's it's interesting to me because I see this happening a lot with a lot of people I know that because getting married, having a kid, I mean, it is a big commitment. It's a sacrifice. Getting an animal, I mean, the relationship's not reciprocal, so it's much easier. It's a lot less risky. 
but at the same time, the dog's not going to love you the way that your child or your spouse will. Um, but I do think that again, like, because a lot of people don't have this awareness that within sacrifice, there's beauty that again, it's promised to us by the trans something transcendent that we're not, we, we can't take this risk. We have to just opt for the dog. Um, but also like, I think it's also a fear of our own limitations that like, oh, I have a lot of psychological complexes or maybe I don't have enough money. I don't want to screw up my yeah. child's life. Yeah. So yeah. even to recognize within my shortcomings that there's, there's more than just that, that, you know, it just shows me that like, we need to open up these questions about what's beyond this level to really be able to trust and plant our roots and make these commitments, you know? Yeah, and you know it's and it's a very, it's a very you know the article about the TV that I that I mm-hmm. you know the deathbed it's that um there was an observation made in that same article that um, people with families with um, couples who have had children uh, report less uh, happiness than those without children so that mm-hmm. that was a question and I thought well that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and it occurred to me that that question itself, um, the author didn't tie it to this sort of deathbed question, but it seems to me that's exactly where you would want to, to ask the question because it, um, I, it, it, there is, in having children, having a family is an incredible, uh, is incredibly demanding and it, 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 it's, it's expropriative. You, you don't, you can't, you don't have the time to ask whether um, you're the right person to do this job, whether, you know, this is something that fits, whether it, it, it conforms to your conceptions of what, what your life ought to be. I mean, you just, those questions don't arise because you're, re- you're simply responding to reality. And, the, and now, um, uh, it seems to me that, that the question about happiness, um, needs also to be asked, do you think that, uh, at, at the, on, on one's deathbed, a childless couple, a, a couple that chose not to have children, you know, I mean, it's one thing if you were unable to have children, sure, but imagine sure, a couple that, were, that decided consciously, we don't want to have children because we want to have a certain lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, whether uh, in the end, they would report the same sort of happiness as you know, one who has um, had a family and had, and the family had a family and, and that one sees this, this, this life continuing in the world, um, uh, you know, as, as, the, as the fruit of, of one sacrifice. I mean, it's, again, it's a different sort of question. So, to, you know, to come back to it, I, I think it's, it's um, uh, this idea of, of, um, uh, you know, we we don't begin by entering into our subjectivity and asking a question about what what is it that we need and what will best suit our our uh, conception of ourselves and the things that we sort of plan for ourselves. But we we in fact begin by just responding to the reality that's there. That this mm-hmm. this kind of responsiveness to the real. Um, I think it's there's a shifting of perspective there that I think is is really crucial and we're losing we're losing the capacity to 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 do it we're we're losing the kind of habits of reality um, which is very worrisome yeah so the last thing i wanted to ask you about this comes towards the end of your book but you talk about how 
this notion of rights that we have, that we're entitled to certain things um, tied to this understanding we have of freedom, how you kind of juxtapose that with the power of, first of all, the state, but also um, the economy, I guess, major corporations and how the more these so-called rights grow, um, the more the state and these, again, these major entities have power over us, a hidden power, but a real one. So yeah. I was just hoping you can kind of flesh out the relationship between rights and the power of yeah. the state and so on. No, that's, that, that's another one of these dialectics. And it's, it's tricky because it seems to be just the opposite. The more rights you have, rights are protections. And you think by having rights, um, you're, you're keeping the, the state at bay. But, but uh, what I try to argue in the, in the book and, and make clear is that, um, is that uh, if rights, that, that can make a certain sense if rights are founded in a, a, a real sense of human nature and uh, the, the reality of, of human community and so forth. But if they become simply, if they're detached from reality and they're simply assertions of power, um, because there's nothing that defines that, um, the only thing that can that can give rights meaning is the threat to them. So mm -hmm. that rights actually kind of need, you know. And I think this is why we have these increasingly intense um, uh, call these uh, um, uh, uh, you know claims of of oppression and and, and expressions of, of outrage that that are we're, we're, you know the identity politics we're constantly uh, asserting uh, um, the fact that we've been uh, uh, neglected in this way or ignored in, in a particular way it's because um, that sort of expression of outrage is, is one of the only ways that we have left in this world of having any real presence in the world and 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 so then the flip side of that is is if there's no if there's nothing real and actual and concrete that gives substance and meaning to rights, then they they can have effectiveness only insofar as the government recognizes them and and gives order to them. And so as we multiply rights, we multiply the powers of government to 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 um, enforce things and police them and, and take control of our lives. And so, you know, for example, we now we give children rights um, uh, and, you know, we're, we're, we're increasingly talking about children's rights over and against parents. Now, what does that mean? That means that the government is involved in the life of the family in a way that it had never been before. So, you know, we can think of, you know, the, the more we multiply rights, the more that this, this phenomenon uh, occurs, this kind of um, calling of, of, of the police <laughs> yeah. into, into the, 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 you know, the most personal dimensions of our yeah. existence. The, the government, but also, I think, major corporations that kind of elicit certain desires or invent certain identities that we don't even naturally we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't arrive to these uh, conclusions that we need or want these things. But I think um, so much of what we perceive to be our rights are being kind of sold to us by these people who are trying to get money out of us. You're, you're, you are absolutely right. I mean that that um, if our if our 
you know, it's one thing if you think of rights as founded in, and rights and human desires as founded in human nature, like who I actually am. Um, there, there, there's going to be a kind of a limit, a natural limit to our desires and a natural kind of order to them. Certain things are naturally more important than others, but corporations want to get rid of conception of human nature because yeah. the, the more empty um, it can make a uh, human experience, the more it can, the, you know, the corporations can dictate what it is that we need and create new needs. And the more needs that are created, the, the more markets there are. And so, yeah. you know, there's a kind of a mechanism that, that again, just, yeah. So you're exactly right. It's not just the state that intrudes, it's, it's the market that intrudes in ways that yeah. the world had never known before. Yeah, and that brings us back to, I guess, the more classical notion of freedom um, as being tied to certain limitations or boundaries, which ultimately protect us from being manipulated by these powers that be. That's um, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Limitations, again, that go back to the organic, the roots of the plant, the flower, that the deeper the roots, you know, the more they are fixed in mm -hmm. a particular place, the more <laughs> the, the the, the plant the tree can expand uh so so there's a paradox of of being attached and limited as a liberation beyond the limits yeah and that goes back to what i what i've been saying that we need some kind of promise that there is something beautiful something liberating within these limits because again at face value or just looking at it through the lens of our instinct no it's it's a condemnation. It's not liberating. Yeah. But yeah. when you look at it through these, you know, when, when you perceive that there's a promise of something good, something fulfilling there, then yeah, it is liberating to say yes to these, to these limits, to these commitments, rather than just this unfettered boundaryless notion of freedom, you know? So. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I would ask before we go, Dr. Schindler, um, can you just mention briefly your, your latest book that was published in case people want to check it out? Right. So uh, there's, uh, it's the, the Politics of the Real is the mm -hmm. latest book. It's published by New Polity. Um, and it's an attempt, this, this book, Freedom from Reality, uh, was more polemical. Politics of the Real has a polemical dimension, but it's meant to start to try to rethink um, the nature of uh, politics and, and political community in a positive way that's founded on reality. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm now um, finishing a, uh, a smaller manuscript um, in relation to a, a lecture that I'll be giving at the end of the month. Um, uh, this one is called God in the City, mm -hmm. um, an essay in political metaphysics. Um, and it's, it's again, th this will be a short 100-page book, I, I hope. Uh, <laughs> that um, uh, that tries to present a more positive, again, very philosophical, but a more positive account of what the human community is about. Um, so that should be coming out uh, maybe in a year or so. Again, uh, that one will be uh, St. Augustine's Press. Okay. Out of South cool. Bend. Yeah. Cool. So, well, Dr. Schindler, thank you for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it was a real pleasure. Of course. Thank you.